Open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. We're going to be looking, I'm going to read for you this morning, Galatians 5, 22 and 23. It's kind of our, our verse for our sermon series, uh, the, the gospel, uh, the internal gospel growth of uh, fruit of the Spirit. And then um, we're going to be looking also at Isaiah and Matthew, but we'll turn there when we get there. But just let me read to you the Word of God, Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. Paul, in contrast to the the deeds of the flesh, writes this, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, is joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. So children, if you're here and you have children's church, you'd be dismissed for kids and... um, we're in Galatians. Let's turn there with me. So we've been looking, as you know, over the past several weeks, we're on number eight of nine characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit, uh, what, what a supernaturally changed heart looks like and, and, and grows in. It's a process, we said. It's symmetrical. It's internal. But God is working in us through the power of His Spirit to produce these nine characteristics uh, described for us in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and 23. Uh, and he's, he's given those things to us. He is empowering us. He is, wants to develop in us those of us who've had an encounter with the living Christ, with the, with, the, with the living Christ, the repentance and faith in him. And he has given all of his children the gift of the Holy Spirit. In fact, the scriptures teach us that every single child of God has been sealed by the Holy Spirit. And Jesus taught specifically that the Holy Spirit, he, the Holy Spirit's primary purpose is to reveal to us the glory of Christ in the gospel and to conform us into the image of Christ, Romans 8. And we've been saying over and over again, and we don't get tired of saying it, that there's a major difference between a morally restrained heart, a heart that is seeking to gain justification, approval, acceptance by what we do and don't do, and a supernaturally renewed heart, one that is resting in, relying upon the gospel, which is faith in Christ and the sufficiency of Christ's work of forgiveness and his perfect and flawless life, his righteousness that's been imputed and accounted to our accounts. I've been saying it over and over again, but this morning I want to say it in a way that comes from Jonathan Edwards. If you're never familiar with Jonathan Edwards, he's a couple of years, a couple of many years ago, hundreds of years ago, he was a pastor and a preacher and a, and, a, and a theologian and a philosopher. He wrote a dissertation called The Nature of True Virtue, and he differentiates between what he calls common virtue and, and true virtue. We would say that common virtue is more of a temperament. True virtue is that which the Holy Spirit wants to do in us. And this is what he says. He says, common virtue, the temperament, produces people who are honest and generous and civil, but it's not the same as true virtue, spiritual virtue. In common virtue, a common man, the inmost behaviors of the heart are restrained, and that is why people are honest and generous and civil, right? The do's and don'ts. But in true virtue, innermost behaviors of the heart are changed, not restrained, end quote. Dr. Keller, writing on Edward's dissertation, writes this. In common virtue, he would say, that would be uh, 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 Jonathan Edwards, you jury-rig the heart. You take the fear and pride, and out of fear and pride, you make a person honest and generous. 
You make them a good citizen out of fear and pride. So you should do this. You need to do this. The pressure and the pride and the fear makes you kind outwardly and makes you generous and honest. In true virtue, fear and the pride of the heart are actually dissolved. They actually disintegrate at the root. And this is what he writes. In other words, moral reformation, moral reformation looks at the rules, but spiritual transformations looks at the ruler, the maker. Moral reformation looks at the rules. Spiritual transformation looks at the ruler and the king. His name is Jesus. He writes, moral reformation bends and forces the heart. Moral reformation bends and forces the heart out of pride, out of fear, out of superiority, inferiority. It bends the heart to do what's right. That's moral reformation. Spiritual transformation, spiritual transformation melts and shapes and changes the heart. You see the difference? End quote. You see, we believe that the transformation that, that melts and shapes and changes the heart happens when we press in and we push in the truth of the gospel. Of Jesus Christ. In Galatians chapter 2, some of you heard this before, I love talking about it. There's many places in Scripture we can go to, but in Galatians chapter 2, Paul the Apostle confronts Peter. Peter the Apostle. It says in chapter 2, verse 11, when Cephas, Peter, came to Antioch, Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. So Peter is eating with Gentiles, which Jews didn't do, until people came from Jerusalem, the religious leaders where the mother church is in Jerusalem. When those people came, Peter withdrew himself from the Gentiles. He says, when they came, he drew back and separated himself. I don't want to hang out with you Gentiles anymore. Fearing, because of fear, of the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews also were hypocritical, Along with him, even Barnabas was led astray by the hypocrisy. Okay? So, no, no, Peter, racism is wrong, right? You could say that. Look at the law, Peter. Look, you know it's wrong. You should fear God. You know, God's going to get you. You know what the law says? The law says, love your neighbors, Peter. You better knock it off. That's what Paul could have said. But that's not what Paul said. Paul confronted Peter in verse 14. It says this, but when I saw that Peter and those with Peter when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. He doesn't say in line with the law of Moses. He says it's not in step with the truth of the gospel. I said to Peter before them all, Peter, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. You see what he's saying? How can we Jews know that we are justified by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, and not by works of the law, look down on anyone with racism? Right? What is racism motivated by? Selfishness, self-promotion, identity issues of superiority? But what if the gospel was the motive? What if, what if the gospel was the motive between races that we are all in the same boat condemned sinners going to hell if not for the rescue and the grace and the mercy of God. There goes your racism. When you don't forgive one another, it's because you don't understand the gospel and how much you've been forgiven. When you hate one another and despise one another, you don't understand the gospel that you were once haters and God pursued you and loved you anyway. The gospel. 
It's the gospel. It's the gospel. Martin Luther writes this. He says, here I must take counsel of the gospel. I must hearken to the gospel, which teaches me. Not what I ought to do, that's the proper office of the law, but what Jesus Christ, the Son of God, had done for me. To wit that he suffered and died to deliver me from sin and death. That is the truth of the gospel, Luther writes. It is also the principal article of all Christian doctrine, wherein the knowledge of all goodness consists, is the gospel. He says this, Most necessary it is, therefore, that we should know this article well, know the gospel well, teach it to others, and beat it into their heads continually, end quote. He must know me. The real problem in our life is that we have not thought out the deep implications of the gospel, that we have not appropriated the gospels in and on all parts of our life. See, the Christian life is not simply following a, a body of truth. It's a life that's continuously practicing and renewing every dimension of our life, spiritual, psychological, emotional, communal, by thinking, trusting, and hoping, and living out the truth of the gospel. It should be applied to every area of our life. And this morning, we're going to look how the gospel, the truth of the gospel, can produce the fruit of the Spirit called gentleness, and how the Holy Spirit can press the truth of the gospel in our hearts and produce that fruit of, of, of gentleness. Now, don't raise your hands, don't raise your hands, but how many people, how many of you get up every morning and say, Lord, please help me to be gentle today? I see you raise your hands because nobody did. We don't pray, we, we pray for love, we pray for grace, we pray for strength, we pray for, we pray all the things, but Lord, I, I want to be gentle today. In 19, excuse me, 1839, George Bethune, he's a preacher of Dutch Reformed Church, he said this. Perhaps no grace is less prayed for or less cultivated than gentleness. Indeed, it is considered rather as belonging to natural disposition or external manners than as a Christian virtue. And then he says, and seldom do we, the church, the people of God, reflect that not to be gentle is sin. End quote. That's tough. I didn't say this at the first service, but... This has not been an easy series for me. You know, you just think about patience and kindness and good and all the things that the fruit of the Spirit. It's like, I know there's fruit somewhere, but you really got to look. You know what I mean? In my life. But this, it's been hard. But it's been good. It's been hard, but it's good. So let's look at three things. Gentleness. Let's look at the gentle character. Talk about the gentle care of God. The gentle Christ. Look at how beautiful and magnificent Jesus is. And then look at the gentle conduct. We'll end in Psalm 37. Just point out some things about gentleness. And we'll end, of course, with the gospel. So, number one, the gentle character. Now, one of the fruit of the Spirit, out of the nine, the one that is most misunderstood is probably this word gentleness. Okay, is the word gentleness. Holman Illustrated Bible Dictionary says the word meek, that's our word, I'll talk about it in a minute. The word meek or meekness often used in older versions of the Bible to translate the Hebrew word anav, A-N-A-V. The Greek word praus, or it really is prahutes. The Greek word, moral quality of humility and gentleness, usually exhibited during suffering or difficulty and accompanied though by faith in God. Gentleness, humility, accompanied by faith in God. Tyndale says this, in the Old Testament, an attitude of humility or bending low, its adjectival and its adverbial forms, gentle and gently, can mean courteous, unpretentious, quiet, and tender. 
You see, the problem with translating the word, this word, prautes, uh, uh, gentle, and the word gentle, some people quote, some people uh, translate it to gentleness, is it wrongly could be understood as weakness. When people think gentleness, sometimes they think weakness. Meekness, the, our real word, meekness or gentleness, does not mean weakness. The word that Jesus used in Matthew 5, the word that Paul is using here in Galatians chapter 5, verse 23, is better translated meekness. It is power under control. It is used for a, a, a horse, a strong animal, a, a horse or, or an oxen that is strong, that is under the control of its master. Power and strength under control. It's not just simply to say meekness is, is, is niceness or a spirit of compromise, willing to, you know, to have peace at any cost or laziness or apathy or without strength or spinelessness. That's not what it means. And it's not natural temperament. It is power and strength under control. Sinclair Ferguson, he wrote this. The word meekness, that's our Greek word, prahutes, is notoriously difficult to define. It's certainly not a lack of backbone. Rather, it is the humble strength that belongs to the man who has learned to submit to difficulties and experiences and with people knowing that in everything God is working for his good, end quote. So both gentleness and meekness is born in power, not weakness. And, and there's, there is a temperament or, 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 or not a... Uh, not a work of the spirit, but a temperament of gentleness that really is timidity. It's just scared of your own shadow or, or a pseudo-meekness that is just cowardly. That's not what the work of the spirit is doing to us. It's power, power under control. Let me give you one more quote if I can. I know it's kind of a long quote, but Dr. Timothy George in his commentary is just a great job. I want you to wrap your head around what the word gentleness, prahutes, meekness means. He says this. The word connotes a submissive and teachable spirit toward God that manifests itself in genuine humility and consideration toward others. It is regrettable, he writes, that the English word gentleness has come to have the popular connotation of wimpish, weakness, and non-assertive lack of vigor. As an expression of the fruit of the spirit, gentleness is strength under control, power harnessed in loving service and respectable actions. One who is gentle in this sense will not attempt to push others around. Some of you need to hear that. I need to hear that. Push people around or arrogantly impose one's own will on subordinates or peers. Gentleness, though, is not incompatible with decisive action and firm conviction. It was, after all, gentle Jesus, meek and, mild, meek and mild, who expelled the mercenaries from the temple with a scourge because of their abstinent defilement of the Father's house, end quote. So you see this picture. It's not pushing people over. It's assertiveness, but it's at the right time, in the right way, in the right manner. Christians are called by the power of the Holy Spirit to press in the truth of the gospel, to live out and to grow in this fruit of the Spirit called meekness. And the reason is because it's a characteristic of God. Turn in your Bibles to, let's turn, look at some scripture. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. If you're familiar with the book of Isaiah, the first 30 verses, first 39 chapters, um, Isaiah is prophesying against the northern kingdom. 
the, the, the ten tribes to the north and they will be destroyed by the Assyrian army. God will send them in and, and discipline his people. Chapter 40, Isaiah is looking to the southern kingdom, Judah, and that the Babylonians will come and soon, a few hundred, hundred or so years, but destroy the southern kingdom. And Isaiah is prophesying. And what's really cool about this is when he's, he's turning to the people, he's trying to comfort them in chapter 40. And, and listen, just a couple of verses. I'm going to bounce around a little bit. I want to get you the flavor of this psalm. Chapter 40, verse 10 says, Behold, the Lord comes. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. Down to verse 14. Whom did he consult, and who made him understand? Who taught him, that's God, the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? The answer is nobody. Verse 15. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. And are counted as the dust of the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Nobody is like our God. Verse 25. Same chapter. Verse chapter 40. Verse 25. To whom then will you compare me? God speaking. That I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number. Calling them all by name. By greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power. Not one is missing. In other words, I am sovereign over the nations. I reign and rule over the nations. And then right there, beautifully sandwiched between the might and power and sovereignty of God is his meekness. Verse 11. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will guide the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Do you see the manifold beauty and attributes of God? At one moment, he's stressing the infinite power, and then the next is beautiful attribute of meekness, gentleness. The picture that Isaiah paints for us is how the Father, how God carries his lambs close to his heart, right in the midst of sovereign power, meekness and gentleness, power, Authority, sovereignty, family, may we never shy away from something that the culture may look down on, but God is trying to work in our life, this idea of meekness, power under control. In the New Testament, meekness, prahuseis, refers to an inward attitude. Gentleness it's a different word, epicase. It's more of an outward expression. There's the meekness of an inward heart that's under control, that's strong but gentle and mild and meek, but yet there's an expression of the heart of gentleness as well. They're different. They're somewhat synonymous used in Scripture, but there is a difference in different Greek words. We should never be afraid that the meekness of the Spirit means weakness of character. Let me say that again. We should never be afraid that the meekness of the Spirit, what He wants to do in our life, means weakness in character. Family, I will tell you, true, genuine, biblical meekness, strength under control, takes God's strength, God's power, to be truly meek and gentle. King David wrote many psalms. One of the psalms he wrote in Psalm 18, one of my favorite psalms, 
is a time when he had victory. It's a time in which uh, his enemies were defeated and he had, uh, come, uh, uh, had won the victory and, and Saul was defeated. He writes Psalm 18 unto the Lord and he talks about God's faithfulness and God's strength and God's power and God's delivering from his enemies. It's, it's a beautiful psalm. And right at the end, toward the end of it, in verse 35, by talking about the mighty hand that rescued him, David writes this, verse 35, Psalm 18. You have given me the shield of your salvation and your right hand supported me and your gentleness, that's the Hebrew equivalent to meekness, your gentleness made me great. What's so cool about that verse too is the NIV, if you have an NIV, it picks up the root word of enav, of the Hebrew and it's condescension. And this is what the NIV says. You give me your shield of victory and your right hand sustains me. You stoop down to make me great. How beautiful is that? You stoop down. Stooping down. God stooped down to help David. How, how beautifully does David recognize and humbly recognizing that everything he has and his power and his, and his right as the king, all that comes from God. He had no right on God. He had no, he had no, it was not by worth or work or strength of his own that he was made king. It was because God was kind and stooped down and showed him favor. God, the creator, sustainer. Of all things, Charles Spurgeon, great preacher, said this many years ago. It is God's, it is God's making himself little, which is the cause of our being made great. We are so little that if God should manifest his greatness without condescension, we should be trampled under his feet. But God, who must stoop to view the skies and bow to see what angels do, bends his eyes yet lower and looks to the lowly and contrite and makes them great. End quote. What a humble reality of the meekness of God. And family, the greatest condescension that God has ever done, the greatest stooping that he's ever done, we know, is in the incarnation. The gentle Christ. The eternal God, Philippians tells us. Though he's in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped. He wasn't holding on to his glory. He left his glory. He emptied himself. Taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, yet without sin, being found in human form, he humbled himself. That's Jesus, condescending down from glory and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That is stooping down. One of the things I think of when I think of the meekness of Christ, not only in his incarnation, not only in his incarnation, but Matthew 11. It's a beautiful verse. Many of you know it by heart. Matthew eleven twenty-eight. Come to me, Jesus says, all who labor, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle, prahusei, I am meek, and lonely in heart, you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is what? Light. Notice he says me, personal pronoun. Come to me. If you don't, never heard this before, Christianity is a relationship with a living, risen Christ, a personal relationship with the living Lord. His name is Jesus. It's not a call to a program. It's not a call to a, to a religious system. 
and certainly not, certainly not to the discipler or human leader. It's not even really a call to a body of truth, although there is some. It says, come to me, a call to the personal reality and relationship of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a personal call to all of us today. Have you heard the call of God? In verse 27 of chapter 11 of Matthew, Jesus says this, right before, right before come to me in verse 28, he says this in 27. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So it's a revelation. It is the sovereignty of God. It is God opening our hearts and minds. But it's also a call of the gospel to come to Jesus Do you hear the call this morning? You see, human responsibility and the sovereignty of God just go side by side. Don't try to figure it out because you can't. Right? There's sovereignty and there's human responsibility. In fact, the word come, duta, is imperative particles, strong exhortation, motivation with force, a strong appeal to the will of another. Come! It, 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 It clearly expresses the desire and compassion heart of the Savior that people will come to him and find relief. Come to me, he says. It's a call to stop trusting in these things and call to come to Jesus Christ. He's making that appeal. You know, too often disciple makers end up replicating themselves. When they, when, when, if you ever hear someone say, come to me, run. When we're, we're here at this church and we believe that when you hear the call of the gospel, it's a call to repent and follow Jesus. And there's a discipleship process that goes with it. But you don't want me to disciple you so that you look like Lou. Believe me. If you think you got enough problems, try to act like and be like me. It's bad. What we want to do is walk together and look like Jesus. He, he's the one we are following. We're not, we're not called to, to look like me, dress like me, act like me, and think every theological thing like me. We want to call to Jesus. We want to come to Jesus. We want an attitude where we grow together. I've been a Christian almost 30 years, coming up next Sunday, actually. And if I'm discipling someone who may be a Christian for six months, there better be an attitude of humility because we're both walking with Jesus. He's the master, I am not. And we come because we feel the need. Look what he says. All who labor, all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. All who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. You see the word labor? Labor is the effect, the effect, and the word heavy laden is the cause. There's a cause and effect. I'm heavy laden, therefore I am weary. I am laboring. Actually, the word labor, some of you have a New American Standard or an NIV. Uh, It means to toil with with great effort and and, and a disagreeable work to, to be tired to the point of exhaustion. I'm laboring under this. It's continuous sense. It's, it's the fruitless effort of people dealing with their sin, their guilt, their sorrow. They're, they're laboring. What am I going to do with this? The word heavy laden is, 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 again, it's just this giant load that I'm carrying around. And I'm working so hard to get this load. I am heavy laden carrying this load around. The word actually became to be known in, in the religious realm in Jesus' day to talk about legal burdens, the oppression of the law. Luke 11, Jesus talking to the religious leaders, woe to you lawyers, you scribes. You weigh men down with burdens hard to bear while you yourselves would not even touch the burden with one of your fingers. 
You add, you add, you add, and you continually push, and you add to the burdens of people, and you won't lift a finger, and they're weary, and they're heavy laden. And family, I'll tell you that he's talking about Pharisees and legalism, but there's a reality of the Old Testament and the laws that's been given that reveal to us who God is and how far short we have fallen. There is a sense in which our sin, our shame, our humility, our brokenness, our rebellion is heavy. It's weighty. It's a load that we cannot bear. And what we try to do is we try to do all kinds of different things. Be nice people. Try to do better. We work, 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 work. And all it is is a, a, a load that we bear. And we weary. And we get weary because we're trying to do it on our own. We're trying to prove ourselves on our own. There's a restlessness. There's a spiritual unrest of your soul. There's anxiety, there is guilt, and there is this performance-based religion or irreligion. I'm just going to do whatever I want, and I just can't seem to prove myself. But if you are burdened by your sin, and you sense the burden of your sin, you sense the fact that you have no hope apart from the mercy of God, Jesus says, come to me. Come to me. I will carry a burden. I am the burden bearer. Jesus said, those who are healthy don't need a doctor, but only those who are sick. Jesus said, I've come for the spiritual sick, for those who are burdened by their sin. We have to acknowledge that. That's the first step toward walking with Jesus. Nothing keeps us away from Jesus more than pride and unwillingness to recognize that we need him. He says, I will give you true rest. I will will give you spiritual rest to cease from your labor. Again, if you come to me and you say, Pastor, I, I need help. I, I, I'm in a bad way. Can, can we pray together? I've got this situation. I've had this happen too. I've got this situation and I'm looking for something biblical. I'm looking for directions and biblical principles in my life. I'm struggling through this difficult time in my life. Will you help me? And I say to you, come to me and I will give you rest. You better flee. That's what you better do. That's crazy. But Jesus can say that. I'm the answer to your problem. Come to me. Trust in me. Rely upon me. I am the answer. I'm not going to give you the answer only. I'm going to be the answer for you. I will give you rest. Rest from the penalty and the power of sin. Rest from from the guilt of sin. Resting in the love of God as in the gospel. Jesus Christ is the supreme burden bearer. He bore our sins on the cross. Isaiah says all of we like sheep have gone astray. Everyone turned to his own way, but the Lord laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. John 3, remember John chapter 1, behold the Lamb of God who lifts up and bears away the burdens of our sin. That's what it means. He will do that for you. He became like us in every way, yet without sin. He identifies with us on the cross, bearing the burden, bearing our sin, and paying the price for our sins. He who knew no sin, Paul says, became sin. And on that forsaken cross, in that dark night on Calvary, Jesus endured the condemnation that we deserve. And praise God, his sin-bearing death, death lifts the burden of guilt, lifts the burden of sin, lifts the burden of shame. We can rest in him, full and free forgiveness, new birth and new beginning. And notice it says here, 
It's not just resting him, it's walking with him. Look at verse 29. Take my yoke, I'll lift your burdens, I'll forgive you of your sins. Come if you're weary, come if you're heavy laden, I will deliver you from that. And then come, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. It's not just sitting around, it's training, it's discipleship. It is being free to walk with Christ. A yoke, that horizontal wood beam across the neck of the oxen, the Jewish people spoke of the yoke of the the Torah, the, the heavy weight of the law. Jesus says, take my yoke upon me. He explains, and learn from me. Walk with me. Take my yoke upon yourself, uh, my yoke upon you. Be my disciple. Submit to my lordship. Bring everything under the control and sovereign hand of me. That's the only way to be liberated. You see, the burden we lose when we come to Christ is heavy. But the burden we gain when we come to Christ is light. Is light. I'll share your load. Stick with me. I will work. We will go. We will be together. My yoke is easy, verse 39. My burden is light. Listen, are you overstressed? Are you overburdened? I've been down that road. Are you overburdened this morning? And many times when I find myself completely stressed out, I'm overburdened because I'm putting on my own yoke. I'm not resting in Christ. I'm not walking with him. And every time I get back on track and say, this is your problem, not mine. I'm, I'm turning it over to you. I'm going to listen to you. I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to receive your kindness and grace, grace and mercy. My level of stress goes down. What Jesus is inviting us to do in coming to him and learning from him is to find our way to freedom. Well, how can that be? How, how can you do that, Lord? Look what it says. For... I am meek, gentle. I am lonely, lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. That's a description of Christ. That's a beautiful description of himself, being humble and meek, humble in heart and meek and gentle, having nothing to fear. Jesus is reminding us of what Isaiah said, that not a single bruised reed he will break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Meekness, strength combined. Family, when do we need the kindness of God, the meekness of Christ more than ever? Is the times when he reveals to us our sin. Is the time when we, are, we, we see our selfish ways. We're humiliated before him. And then he comes in his kindness and his meekness. And he loves us. And he forgives us. And he comes and he makes a way for us to come and he washes us of our sins. He cleanses us of our sins. And when you come to me with those things, Jesus says, I am meek. I'm not going to hear your heart. I know what's in your heart. I've seen those things. But I'm not going to humiliate you. I'm going to heal you. I'm not going to shame you. I'm going to forgive you. I'm not going to condemn you. I'm going to set you free. That's the meekness of God. That's the kindness and generosity and beauty of God. When Christ comes into your life, he says, follow me and me alone. Submit to my absolute authority and obedience and be totally submissive to me. And we hear those things and we're like, man, that's that's crazy. Listen, Jesus is the only one who could say that and free us. Jesus is the only one that comes into our life and doesn't force us, but leads us in love and grace and mercy. He's the only one. Becky Piper wrote this, Jesus is the only one that can control you without destroying you. He's the only one that can control you without destroying you. Why? Because he's meek and he's kind 
and he's gentle in heart. John Stott writes, Jesus describes himself as humble and gentle in heart. You have nothing to fear. He is patient, gentle master, and lays upon us an easy yoke and a light burden if we will but come to him, end quote. When God's, listen, when God's ruling and healing power comes through his meekness, we blossom. We blossom. We become everything we can be and we are made to be. He is meek, he is lowly in heart, and he says it again, I will give you rest. He promises peace to the sinner. He promises peace to those who are trying to justify themselves by giving himself to us. If you will lay yourself bare before him and you expose your life to him, he will heal you, he will forgive you, he will draw near to you because he is meek. No wonder in Matthew 5, the gentle conduct. No wonder that God is meek and gentle that Jesus says in Matthew 5, 5, remember the Beatitudes? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, for the meek shall inherit the earth. You know where Jesus got that from? The Old Testament. Psalm 37. Jesus quoting Psalm 37 while he is teaching the people on the mountain the Beatitudes. So if you have a Bible, we're going to end right here in, in Psalm 37. Turn to Psalm 37 because what we're going to see in this psalm is that the psalmist is going to tell us, Psalm of David, is going to tell us why does the meek inherit the earth? What, what does meekness look like? What can we walk away, four things quickly, we can walk away about being meek and inheriting the earth. Okay, that's what Jesus, Matthew 5, 5, he's pointing to Psalm 37. I have it up there for you. Okay, so this psalm addresses people who are evil and the faithful people of God. And the faithful people of God are looking at evil and they're prospering and they're getting angry because like, it's, not, it's hard to be meek when you see evil people prospering and you're not. <laughs> and what, what, what the psalmist wants to do is say, no, stay faithful, stay true, stay honest to the Lord. It's not going to be this way forever. God will have his vengeance and God will make everything right. That's what the psalm is all about. So what can we take away about meekness? Look with me in Psalm 37, verse 4, verse 3. First thing we take away of a meek person who will inherit the earth is this. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land with, and befriend faithfulness. Be faithful. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Meekness begins when there's a total reliance and trust in God. Trust in God. We believe that he is at work. He will vindicate those who oppose us. They are, look at verse 4, they, they, they draw their delight and joy from their communion with God. Delight thyself or delight yourself in the Lord. And when you delight yourself in the Lord, he gives you desires of your heart because he is putting them in there and now he will give you that which is of himself, communion with God. Trust in the Lord. It's not an empty slogan. It's active. And some of you know that because we trust in the Lord and then we don't. And we get in our knees and we pray and we give everything to God and then 20 minutes later we're all stressed out again. Right? And we've all been there. Everything in the end, the meek person believes the faithful one believes under the hand and the protection of God. You see, in order to be meek, power under control, in order really to be humble, which is confidence properly placed, not in you, we have to have complete reliance that God is sovereign and he is good and he's working all situations out for his appointed and holy ends. 
John Piper writes, biblical meekness is rooted in the deep confidence that God is for you and not against you. David just wrote in verses 1 through 3 of Psalm uh, 37 about the evil people who are winning. What we need to do is roll the whole problem onto the Lord. Watch him vindicate you in due time, which brings me to number two. Number one is trust in the Lord. Number two, look at verse five. Commit your ways to the Lord. Trust him, he says it again, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as light and your justice as the noonday. The Hebrew word for commit is a cool word. It means to roll. It actually literally means to roll away. Meek people are committed. They, they're rolling everything, all situations, onto the Lord. Their marriages, their businesses, their problems, their health, their fears, frustrations are rolled onto the Lord. They recognize that I'm inadequate to handle these things. I'm going I'm to give them to him in the precious of life. They're committing themselves to, to God who promises to sustain them, to guide them, and to protect them. 1 Peter 5, verse 6, Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at, at the proper time he may exalt you. It's his timing. Casting all your anxieties on him. To cast a, a fishing rod. Cast your anxieties upon him. As great as that verse is, to cast your anxieties upon him, it gets better. Because the next verse is this. Because he cares for you. I love that. We should cast our anxieties upon him. Why? Because he cares for us. Commit my way to the Lord because he cares for us. So meek people trust. They commit. Look at verse 37, uh, chapter 37, verse 7a. Quiet and still before the Lord. They're patiently waiting on the Lord's vindication. Psalm 37, verse 7. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Jump down to verse 8. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Doesn't mean, this doesn't mean meek people become lazy or don't have a right to be angry at times, righteous anger. But it's a submissiveness to God. Not to this world who says, get yours. They treat you that way, treat them back, right? You know that. There's a part of us that when someone does something, we want to respond in like manner, if not better. So don't do that. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And meekness then is witnessed by a kind of steady calm that comes, knowing that God is omnipotent, that he has your life and circumstance under his control. And meek people know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. There's, there's a, meek people have, a, there, there's a growing sense of steadfastness. There's a growing sense of steadfastness and composure in the midst of mayhem and chaos because God is in control and he is kind and meek toward me. So number four, meek people trust, commit, are still before the Lord, wait patiently and look at verse 7b. They don't fret over wicked people. They're not going to last. It's easy to see the wrongs of others and get very upset to the point of fretting over them and constantly being drawn into that same conversation, that same ways. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. 8b, fret not yourselves again, he says. It tends only to evil. Verse 10, in just a little while, the wicked will be no more. They're not gonna last forever. God will have his final say. Though you look carefully at this place, you're not going to be there. And then verse 11. But all those who trust, who are committed, who rely upon, who wait patiently, who are waiting on the vengeance of the Lord, but the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Man, meek people know their, their life is in the hands of God. 
They trust him. They're waiting patiently. They're quiet to see how his power and goodness are going to work things out together. And when it's time to act, and there are times to act. Meekness is not weakness. There's time to act. We'll do so for God's purposes, for God's glory, and God's strength, and wait for God to do what God can only do. Things that are beyond our control, the evil things that are going on in our world, we're going to leave it to the Lord. We're going to leave it to the Lord. We're not going to get bitter. We're not going to be angry. We're not going to be fretful. We're going we're to not do what the world says. We're going to be meek. And because of that, because we have been set free from vengeance, because we have been set free from, from carrying the burden, because we are, we are free to love the Lord and, and recognize that this ain't our home, this ain't our place, this earth is not simply all there is, there is, we can inherit the earth. Isn't that interesting? I think in Psalm 37, I think even Jesus in in Matthew 5, 5 are speaking about two things. I think when he says the meek will inherit the earth, he's talking about here and now because we've been set free from all that stuff. We're not not grasping on things. We're not trying to justify ourselves. Our burden has been lifted and there's a freedom of just loving Jesus, him loving us, being forgiven, accepted, loved, and received by the gospel. There's, There's a freedom that we now can live in this land without all those kinds of burdens and things that are going on. But that's not all there is. Because both Psalm David and Jesus in Matthew 5 is speaking of a future kingdom as well. For the meek shall inherit earth means those that are followers of Christ and those that are growing in the fruit of the Spirit who belong to him, because they belong to him, will inherit an eternal kingdom. There's going to be a healed creation. There's going to be a new heavens and a new earth in which the meek of God, the people of God, will live and reign and rule and have sovereign dominion, not sovereign, ultimate sovereign, but dominion over the land. We're looking for a city that is to come. Even while we do our best to see the kingdom established here, there's a time coming when we, the heirs of Christ and and the fellowship of the brethren and and the sisters of Christ, will live and reign in an earthly kingdom. We look forward to that day. Let me, let me close this morning, two more minutes, and tell you a story. Just give me two minutes to tell you a story. It's a narrative. Standing before Pilate on the day in which Christ, or the morning of Christ's crucifixion, standing before Pilate, two men faced each other. Jesus, the epitome of meekness, and Pilate, the epitome of pride, worldly power. Jesus, the humble Jewish man, Captured on the wave of Roman history, frail, seemingly impotent, in chains, waiting execution. Pilate, the the man of great power and great authority, who appeared to be the one in that moment to be the heir of the earth. What a paradox. Because it was Jesus, the meek. It was Jesus, the meek prisoner, who was truly the free man. Jesus was the only one in chains, but was in absolute control. It was Jesus who was going to be obliterated from the earth that would inherit not only the earth, but the whole universe. It was Pilate, the free man, who was the prisoner of his own power, his own pride, who had no inheritance. Jesus not only taught the paradox, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, but he lived it. Immense strength, immense strength under control, demonstrated in pure, unadulterated love of others, for others. What does meekness look like? Listen, it is not the absence of gentleness or a presence of meanness. 
It is not grasping and, and vengeance and, and, and caring a little bit about others. It is strength under control, calmness in the midst of a storm, in everything trusting God's good and loving providence. How do we see that? Listen, press in the gospel. When you look in the face of your meek Savior, you need to recognize, we need to recognize, we need to press in that Jesus on that night did not give up his power. He did not give up his greatness. He did not give up his authority, his moral beauty. He could have commanded angels to come down, destroy the earth, but he doesn't. He is all-powerful. He is, he is at that moment of being crucified capable, perfectly capable of administering justice, perfect justice, in infinite glory, but he doesn't do that. Why not? Jesus was mocked and spit upon. He said nothing, but he committed himself to the Father. He trusted him completely, 1 Peter 2. For this you have been called, because Christ also suffered, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his footsteps. Come to me. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judged justly. And to the degree you see Jesus, the Savior, the meek Savior, the gentle Savior, the humble Savior, who gave himself as a sacrifice to that degree that you feel secure in the gospel, in our faith, confidence in Christ, that will enable you to live life in a meekness that no one has ever seen before. That will enable you to live in meekness and grow in the spirit, fruit of the spirit, meekness in the midst of any storm. It's the gospel. It's, it's pressing in the gospel. It is, it is the bread that was broken, the body that was given for Jesus. It is the cup that symbolized the blood that was shed on the cross. It is the most, impot- most powerful, reigning, ruling, sovereign one in complete power and authority who laid down his life in vulnerability so that you can have life in his name. That's what communion is all about. It's remembering, it's coming to the table, and I'm gonna tell you something this morning. If you're a follower of Christ, Jesus is calling you, come. Come to me, come to the table. Remember what I've done. Let that sink in. Press in the truth of the gospel. Rest in me, trust in me, be confident in me. Do you know him? Then come. The band's gonna play. We're gonna confess our sins quietly and in your place. And when you're ready, we come and we celebrate the forgiveness of sins. It's not just confession. It's repentance and celebration of the Lord's Supper together. Father, thank you for the meekness of Christ. Thank you for the kindness you've shown to us. Thank you that when we open ourselves up and we bear our souls, the dirt and the garbage and the filth that's in our own hearts, Lord, you do not beat us, you heal us. You do not cast us away, you bring us in. You say, come to me, all who are heavy, labor and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. I am meek and gentle at heart. Lord, thank you for that truth. May we turn our lives over to you. May we confess our sins and enjoy the sweet fellowship of the forgiveness we have only in Christ. So help us to respond now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.